the Ain't No Fang podcast. From Arizona Sports, Ain't No Fang. All-star festivities are underway. The game is tonight. The Home Run Derby was last night. And the Diamondbacks have plenty of participants all, I was going to say weekend, but it's not really a weekend. All week long, I suppose I should say. Yeah, it's easy to say like, oh, the all-star game weekend or stuff. I feel like we're just accustomed to that with NBA, but yeah, you know, just the it's not all-star week. weekend. It's all-star beginning of the week, I guess. Uh, I'm Steve Zinsmeister. That's Alex Weiner that you hear covers the team for ArizonaSports.com. Let's start with the home run derby since that's what's already happened um, last night. It was pretty cool. I love the event every year, and Seattle is kind of an interesting place to have it. There really was a lacking of left-handed hitters, which is weird because I felt like all the focus was on left field last night because that's where the majority of home runs were going. Adley Rutschman did hit left-handed in the regular time, and then when he got bonus time, he switched to righty, which I thought was hilarious. I don't know that that's ever happened before where a pitcher, or where a hitter switch hit in the same at-bat or even in the same derby. I don't know if that's ever happened before or not, but... Yeah, I'm not sure either, actually. I'd have to go back and, like, you have to go back decades to try to find this. There's been a couple uh, switch hitters. Like, I think Mark Teixeira did a home run derby. But did he switch during the middle of the round? I I doubt it. it. Also, there wasn't timeouts back then. The bonus ball, the the timeouts, the extra 30 seconds he got, it's it's like, all that's pretty new, and so nobody wanted to switch in the middle of their at-bat and take, you know... Or I guess it used to be with outs as opposed to time anyway, so maybe. It's changed dramatically over time. I actually like the way they do it now because it does lead to more home runs being hit. It's not just the the 10-out thing. Um, It does kind of leave you without those magical moments like Josh Hamilton and Yankee Stadium hitting 28 or whatever it was. You can't really have that magic again because the magic of it was the fact that he just never got out. And so it is a little bit different. Um, Vlad Guerrero Jr. wins the Derby. He joins his father, who I believe won in 2007, I think it was. 2007, correct. And so that's pretty cool. I was actually a little surprised Vlad Sr. wasn't there. I believe he was calling him at one point between at-bats, which is still cool. And uh, I don't know what he was up to or where he's at or whatever, but uh, it would have been cool to see them on the field together. But still really cool to see father-son, the first ever father-son combo to win the Derby. Yeah, really, really cool. I mean, uh, you know, Vlad was uh, Vlad Sr. was tweeting through the whole thing, so he was definitely an active participant, even if he wasn't quite there. But yeah, uh, that was awesome. I mean, I-, I remember the 2007 Home Run Derby. It was just like one of the first like all-star game events that I remember, and I grew up in Southern California, so seeing Vlad win that was super exciting. Where was that one? That was in San Francisco. Right. So, um, Right. And then there's like obviously photos of Vlad Jr. as a little kid, like running around during that entire thing, so now Vlad Jr. wins it. Um, so yeah, that was that was a cool derby. It was it was a fun derby. It was I feel like the last few have just been much more competitive and a lot more fun to watch. I mean, Randy versus Vlad is the final that you wanted to see out of all that, I feel like. Obviously, the Seattle fans wanted to see Julio Rodriguez in there, and Who that would have been great, 41 too. 41 in a round. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, so another good one. I think uh, I think they've really hit their stride as far as giving us entertaining home run derbies with the stars that we want to see in them. I like that nobody was a complete dud. I do feel Mookie Betts was, I mean, he came into it talking about, like, I have no chance to win this. Like, I mean, if you've seen the other guys that I'm going up against, I'm this little twig of a human being. I mean, he hits a lot of home runs, but he doesn't hit, you know, 
monster shots in games. He usually ekes them out, but hey, they all count the same in a baseball game. But in the Derby, they don't. Not really, because you hit them 440, you get the bonus time. Um, I always felt Mookie was at a disadvantage from the get-go, but he wasn't a complete disappointment. It's not like uh, when Brett Boone went out there and hit like two home runs, or <laughs> like when uh, I think Hank Blaylock missed, he swung and missed one time in the home run derby. Oh, I like, don't remember that. Yeah, no. it's like there are some p- people who are complete duds in the derby, but I didn't feel that there was any of that this year. And I, I agree with you on Randy. I think he's one of the most exciting players in baseball. He does the pose that he always does with his arms crossed, and he <laughs> looks kind of angry because that's what he did after he robbed that home run in the WBC. Yeah. Um. So he's got it going on. He's got his little girl running around on home plate. Love that. I mean, if you, if you went to the WBC here at Chase Field and watched Team Mexico and watched him hit batting practice... That's why I thought he was going to win, just because I just remember seeing that so vividly. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that show. He's a monster for sure. Um, Pete Alonso, I feel like Pete Alonso just lives for this event. I mean, there's literally images of him before the Derby with lifting weights in the locker room. <laughs> like, he prepares for this thing in and a he, way that I feel no one else does. He was put behind the eight ball a little bit as far as, like, he had to switch pitchers. He didn't get yeah. the best pitch selection. And, by the way, he had to follow Julio Rodriguez, who the entire stadium was going absolutely nuts for, who broke a record. I mean, come on. Talk about a guy getting set up for failure. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. It's funny you bring up the pitching aspect. I was talking with my girlfriend about this. We were watching at home last night. She's not the biggest baseball fan. So she's asking me a lot of questions about why do they do this? Why do they do that? And I explained, you know, that the rules have changed dramatically over the years. And she's like, why don't they just use a pitching machine to, like, ensure that the ball is where they want it to be every single time? She's also, like, a, a stats analyst. So, like, she does a lot of, like, elimination of variables sure in like equations and stuff so she's like why wouldn't you just eliminate the variable of the pitcher not being on his game that night and i was like listen you're way over analyzing this i think that it's <laughs> i think that it's nice that the pitcher plays a role in how well the hitter does um it's a connection there yeah, yeah. you trust to, to be able to get the ball over the plate in the exact spot that you want it in right adjust depending on how your swing is looking yeah no that too and i do like the stories you get like adley rutchman and i think it was his dad that was out there pitching to him right Mm -hmm. and you see that every couple of derbies you see dads or former coaches from high school or college or maybe somebody from the organization themselves sometimes managers even so i i like that aspect of the derby it was a really good one um i don't know where it stacks up all time i mean there's been some other ones that were really cool but all in all i thought it was a huge success yeah, now uh, who would win a derby if you just put all Diamondbacks in it for this season, do you think? This season's this Diamondbacks? Season. Yeah. Well, Christian Walker would be in there. Mm-hmm. Corbin would Corbin would be in it, but Corbin hits like half of his home runs to opposite field. Yeah, more than half. And that's not a derby <laughs> thing, really. So I would think those two would be up there. Lourdes has gotten some power back this year, some pole power. I wouldn't sleep on Cattell hitting from the right side. Could tell from the right side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, another switch hitter. He yeah. could switch if I. I wondered when 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 Adley did that yesterday. I wondered if like you know different muscles, if it just like gives you a boost of some sort. Because he got he went out there and he switched to right handed and he hit like four or five out in a row. Yeah. Right hand like he did I'm sure, well. I'm sure it does. You, you kind of have to snap into a different mindset a little bit and then, you know. It, it, probably for switch hitters are a little bit more comfortable on one side than the other. Maybe you end with the side you're more comfortable on just to kind of get that extra boost at the Maybe. end of your round. But he did three minutes, if I remember right. I think he did all three regulation minutes left-handed, left-handed yeah. and then in bonus he switched to right. 
And if you wanted to use your more dominant That's side, true. you would probably do that for longer period. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. But Adley, by the way, was awesome and didn't make it out of the first round. Yeah. That's how you know you had a good derby, in my opinion. Um, if you did all the Diamondbacks this year, I'm picking Christian Walker. I'd pick a tell. Okay. I think that's fair. Those are both pretty good picks. Um, I just don't think Corbin has like the traditional derby power. I think he he's could, got oppo in-game power. I think he could put on a show if he wanted to, but I don't know. For some reason, I've just seen enough Cattell Marte batting practices, hitting from the right side, sending it six rows deep that, I don't yeah. know, it sticks in my brain a little bit. Like somebody I would enjoy watching in a derby, low-key, maybe this is pretty under the radar, but like Alec Thomas's swing is very much a pull swing. And I think if he got under the ball consistently, I think Alec Thomas could do some damage. But I don't think he could beat any of those guys, necessarily. If you did an all-time D-backs derby, because Luis Gonzalez has won the thing yeah. in 2001. Uh, and we'll talk about some parallels to 2001 here in a second. But Luis Gonzalez would be in the derby. Goldschmidt's never done a derby, has he? I don't know if he has. I don't remember. Um, But he's never... I. Goldschmidt's never struck me as a derby guy. He doesn't really have that uppercut swing, in my opinion. Mark Reynolds is a name that comes to mind for me that would be (laughs) interesting in a derby. I don't know if he ever did one. Who else would be good? Matt Williams, maybe? Yeah, there's a headline from 2013, Paul Goldschmidt, happy to not be in home run derby, (laughs) so... Yeah, that's like all those years of LeBron not doing the dunk contest. Happy to not do it. And we have a we have a, a, an article on our website, Gold Not Goldie, the 2015 Home Run Derby. Uh, I think it's also like Goldie not not doing it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Here's another um, name I'd throw out: Adam Dunn. Adam Dunn would be a good one, but That'd I feel like maybe pre D-backs, Adam Dunn would be a little bit better. Yeah, you're probably right on that. But anyways. Um, I guess getting back to the the All Star Game festivities, we we got a pretty big uh pretty big deal to start off this thing. Zach Gallen, we haven't talked about this since it was announced yesterday from the time that we were recording. He's known about it for almost a week, but yeah, uh, we haven't. Did and that surprise you that he knew about it or that he was starting? That he knew for so long and we didn't. Uh, a little bit. That tends to you know someone would slip, but I guess he kept it pretty close to the vest. They did a good job of that. It was funny because um, Gallen started in between finding out he would start the All-Star game and uh, when they announced it. Right. And he spoke to reporters after the game and he got asked the questions, oh, what would it mean to you to like start the All-Star game? He's like, oh, I would be pumped to do it. You know, I'm just happy to be there. So if it happens, great kind of a thing. He already knew. Yeah, exactly. So he he did a good job of uh, kind of being low-key about it and not toward Leah showing off his hand. But yeah, it's it's a pretty cool moment for Diamondbacks fans. It's been more than two decades since they've had a pitcher start in the all-star game for them and um he's going to do it against garrett cole which is a you know pretty big name matchup for him uh and then i you mentioned the parallels between 20, 2001 and uh and this year as far as this all-star game is concerned 2001 it was randy johnson versus roger clemens so it was yankees diamondbacks and then that ended up being the world series matchup plus you throw in that was the last time the diamondbacks had an outfield starter Luis yeah. gonzalez played center field this is obviously Corbin Carroll is the first one since then in the outfield. He's playing tonight. He's hitting eighth, um, and he's playing left field, if I remember right. So Correct. that's another thing to keep your eye on today. But yeah, there are a lot of parallels to 2001, and we just talked about Gonzo winning the home run derby that year. Not that a D-back did that this year, but it's just interesting. It's the last time that the game was played in Seattle. 
So there's all these tiebacks, and it makes you start to wonder, ooh, is this going to be uh, something special maybe for the Diamondbacks? Yeah, I love this for Gallon. He should have been an all-star. We've talked about this before. He yeah. should have been an all-star in 2020, but there was no game. He should have been an all-star last year, but timing just didn't work out, and it ends up being Joe Mantiply instead. Um, so this should be Gallon's third all-star appearance. I think I saw him talking with MLB Network, and I think it was Adnan Verk was like, I feel like you're already an all-star. Like I, yeah. I was shocked when I saw that not Maybe only are Chris you Young. starting. or Yeah, it was, it was Chris Young was at the desk, and he said, he's like, I was just stunned that you haven't been here before, and this is your first start, too. Like, that's crazy to me. And he's deserved it for a while. We talk about, like, the dominance that Zach Allen has shown at home this year. He's 9-0. and The ERA is, like, 1.5 at home. He's been insane. And so he's absolutely deserving. Nobody else made sense to start this game for a couple of different reasons. Kershaw probably would have had an argument, but he's on the I.L., both of Atlanta's pitchers, Bryce Elder and Spencer Strider, pitched over the weekend. They weren't going to be in it, so they pulled out. Yeah, Marcus Stroman decided he needed rest. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me because they're going to ask you to pitch, what, an inning? I don't think that's that much stress on your arm, but okay. Sometimes you don't want to do it. I, I guess. He kind of marches to his own beat of his own drum. You know what I mean? Like, he's a little bit different, Marcus Stroman is, so I, no, I'll throw him a bone there, but he's not going to participate, he's so he can't He's been in the All-Star game before. Maybe it's just kind of a yeah, injury done. I don't know. Just, I don't know. Uh, Justin Steele had an argument, but he just hasn't done it as long as Gallon has. Gallon's just yeah. been better longer, and I think that that plays a role. And then they have the replacements, and which is, you know, at this point has been brought up before, but, you know, the shame that Merrill Kelly happened to get the blood clot when he did is that he would have been prime for one of those replacement spots because... You know, Corbin Burns got one. Corbin Burns is a superstar pitcher. I don't think he's having as good a year as as Merrill Kelly was having at this no. point. And, um, there were a few others. So, yeah, he would have been, you know, a potential, you know, could they gone Zach Gallen first inning, Merrill Kelly fourth inning or something like that. That would have been fun to see. But, yeah, as far as people starting the game, uh, yeah, once once the field kind of cleared out and we knew who was available, it made the most sense that Gallen was the guy. Uh, but a cool moment for his career. I mean, yeah, it's, it is it is a little surprising he was an all-star before, but when you look at it, you, you can kind of explain each and every single season. Uh, and so for him to get that nod at this point, just with how um, attentive he is to, de- uh, to details and just how he's been preparing these last few years and been improving, that's uh, a it's a cool moment for the organization for sure. He talked about how he's going to game plan for this game. First of all, <laughs> unbelievable that you, I don't know what game plan you can come up with to get the nine best hitters in the opposing league out, but because um, he's certainly going to face some incredible hitters. I mean, he's going to face Shohei Otani in the first inning. Yeah, he gets uh, Simeon, uh, Shohei, and then a Rosarena, and then if somebody gets on Corey Seager. Yeah, talk about a brutal inning right there. So I don't know how you game plan for that. I guess in my head I had it that like you just don't game plan for an all-star game just you go out there and just kind of you know well for a lot of the guys they're kind of out of the routine anyway because they're coming out of the bullpen which is not something they're used to doing right but for gallon he gets to start so he gets to do his pregame routine and yeah i know. guess all power to him i don't blame him for doing it i just i just kind of was a little surprised by that he's he's yeah. handling it very uh officially he's he's which sounds like doing him. what he does yeah and uh yeah he gets to connect with uh sean murphy who's going to be catching him uh, we we saw him face Shohei uh, just a couple like a week ago, or a week and a half ago at this point. But that's still, I mean, you want to see it again, obviously. And yeah, then for sure. He gets to face Randy Rosarena, who again he's also faced uh, relatively recently. A couple of weeks, yeah, but that still was like a week and a half ago. We uh, those are both like those are the two guys in the American League lineup that I'm most excited to be watching. So so here's the question: 
how many innings for Zach Gallen? How many at bats for Corbin Carroll, Geraldo Perdomo, and Lourdes Gurriel? If you had to guess, I think just the one for Gallen, unless he gets like breezes through it, like one, two, three on 10 pitches, which he absolutely can do. Um, if that happens, maybe he gets a second, but I, you're, you're trying to get all these guys in. And I know the National League doesn't have as deep of an arsenal as the American League in this game, but they have more than nine pitchers. So I right. think you see Gallon for one, then you turn it over to Justin Steele, then you turn it over to Kodai Senga or Corbin Burns or Alex Cobb, and then kind of go from there. So I, I would think one with Corbin, probably hitting eighth is, is I, I thought it would have been cool to lead him off just because like put the Seattle kid at the top of the lineup. They put him eighth. And he's um, like in the MVP race. Yeah. It's not like he's Orlando Arcia and you're trying to make the case he should be hitting leadoff. Like, no, this is this is the guy. Like, somebody has to hit eighth. I get it. And Ronald Acuna, Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts is a heck of a top of the order to I go to. I can't blame him, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it would have been fun to see him. There's like some seniority to it. Yeah. Probably two at-bats would be my guess. Okay. Maybe. It depends how many hits. He's hitting eighth, so yeah. you got to... The order's got to go around twice. That's tough. And then Lourdes and Geraldo, I mean, I think at that point you hope they get two. I think everyone's going to get one at least. And once the reserves come in, you kind of you hope they get two. So Are there other shortstops on the bench? Because it's uh, no. Arcia and Perdomo. Are they the only two shortstops? Correct. Yeah, so he, he would come in after. They went two shortstops, two second basemen. So they could give Arcia like five innings and then give Perdomo four or Correct. something like that. They could do that. Yeah. Okay. And then in outfield's pretty crowded, but I mean, um, not not as much as you'd think. I mean, Guriel, Nick Castellanos, and Juan Soto are the four reserve outfielders, and then you have Jorge Soler as a DH, but he'll probably come in for JD Martinez. Yeah, but those are also all corner outfielders. Now you do have a DH slot too. That's just someone's going to slide over to center just for the All Star game. They're not going to. I don't know. Nick Castellanos in center field. That would be great. Put Lourdes <laughs> out there. See how he does. Lourdes in center. Yeah, let's try it. Why not? All the other D-backs players play center field. It's not like first base where it's like you have to get Freeman is at bats and Matt Olson and Pete Alonso. That's a little bit trickier. I'm really just hoping that one of the Diamondbacks gets a hit tonight. I mean, I know that that's kind of simplistic to say. It's Obviously, we want them all to get hits. But, I mean, it's kind of a rare thing because, you know, you make the All-Star game is hard enough. Then playing in the All-Star game is hard enough. And then getting multiple at-bats is hard, and then getting a hit is actually hard. So there's all these elements to it that have to line up perfectly. And so it feels like Corbin is probably the best opportunity to get a hit tonight, but I'm really interested to see how it goes for the Diamondbacks players. And there should have been some other guys there, too. Cattell should have been there. I'm still mad about that. Um, but you know, I don't think he's mad about it necessarily. Eh, I I don't know about that. Um, I'm I'm sure there's some. If so, he'll never say it. But uh. Yeah, yeah, that was a uh, that those he has a, he had a very very strong case to be made to make it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Diamondbacks and where we're at because we're we will be heading into the second half of the season. Second half, I'm going to throw that in air quotes because we're already past the halfway point officially. Um, the games start again, I think Friday. Correct. So we got a couple days to figure this out. Where are the Diamondbacks at? What lessons have they learned in the first half that apply to the second half? They're going to have a bit of a schedule gauntlet coming out. Of the All-Star break, I mean, we talked about it earlier. They're going to face some really difficult teams right away. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the schedule out of the All-Star break, uh, they come back and immediately have a nine-game road trip. In Toronto, against the Blue Jays, day off. At Atlanta against the Braves. And then at Cincinnati before they come back and face the Cardinals and the Mariners. A couple of teams have disappointed but have a lot of talent. 
So it's not going to be easy for them out of the break. And I think where they're at is in a very, very uh, opportunistic spot, uh, given where they've been the last couple of seasons. They got off to a monster start to this year. It's tailed off a little bit some in the past three or so weeks, uh, especially offensively when they've gotten a little bit more out of their starting rotation. Merrill Kelly went down, but with the off days, they were able to piece it together a little bit, and then they end up winning a bullpen game. So the pitching has looked better as of late for the most part. Um, Gallon has obviously helped a lot with that. He had a great last start, but Tommy Henry has turned things around. Ryan Nelson looked to be turning a corner. He had a difficult last start, but that just seems to be something that's been happening for him uh, throughout the season. Like two great starts, one not so good, and then come back, and then so it just kind of fluctuates. Uh, and then Davies has been better as of late than that horrible three-game stretch he had earlier. So the pitching has solidified a little bit, but then the offense has kind of gone down a little bit. So now it's just about how they can stay a little bit more consistent and get everything firing all at once because we haven't totally seen that this year. It feels like one thing dips when the other thing comes back up. And then the trade deadline is in three weeks. And so now that they have a few days off between seeing them play, kind of knowing what they have and what they need, and Mike Hazen went on the air to talk about this, pitching, potentially a starter and a uh, back end of the bullpen guy. The bullpen has mostly been pretty good, but there have been high leverage situations where they have flou- uh, floundered a bit. And then possibly another power bat just to kind of supplement the back end of the lineup. Top end's been very, very good consistently all year. The back end has had its ups and downs. So I think that's sort of the general outlook of what we're looking at so far. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Hazen talk about the differences between being aggressive and being reckless. Mm-hmm. And, like, we all want them to be aggressive at the deadline. But that doesn't necessarily mean we want them going out and trading Jordan Lawler or going out and giving up the entire farm for one player or something like that. And so I'm interested to see what they do. Hazen and crew always seem to do something unexpected, uh, whether it's the deadline where they decided to trade... Uh, trade away their best prospect and get Zach Gallen, which was surprising at the time, and we didn't quite know what Gallen was going to be. Obviously, looking back, we're all pretty thankful for that trade. Um, but that was a deadline where they were buyers and sellers. This is one where we definitively know, and they have said out loud, we will be aggressive buyers. What does that look like? Because this organization hasn't really been in that position uh, since maybe 2017, which was their first year as an organization here. They didn't really have minor league depth to trade from they did go and get jd martinez who was one of the best trades i think i've ever seen for Mm -hmm. an organization uh, especially on a rental deal but they didn't really give up a whole lot for that i i think the tigers flubbed that trade more than anything so this organization is in a position that i don't think they've been in in hazen's tenure as a a general manager of this team yeah especially in a bit they also i think it was 2018 when they went out and made the Eduardo Escobar deal, but that was, you know, Escobar ended up being an all-star for them, but kind of because they needed an all-star, and he was a very productive player in Arizona for multiple years, but it's not like they went out and got, like, a superstar or anything like that. Maybe something like that uh, this season, where they don't give up one of their top five prospects, or they hold on to Lawler and Jones, and Hazen said they have an untouchables list, which can be relative based on what gets offered to them. That's not an untouchable list, then. (laughs) But, you know, it's guys that well, they're, they're untouchable not unless going, you offer us something good. They're they're you know I find it hard pressed to to believe that they're going to go out and 
steal some of their top guys. I think Lawler. Last couple of seasons. I think Lawler's the only prospect in my mind that I'm like, I really don't want them to trade him. And I know that a lot of other teams, like if you're going to try to trade for a Stroman or a Corbin Burns or something, like I think most teams would start by asking for Jordan Lawler. Right. I'm not sure. Because that's their super prospect. I'm not sure they're going to get somebody like an all-star starting pitcher. I don't um, either. But I'm starting to feel okay. less and less that they will. But if they don't, then that's that's okay. I mean, they can supplement their depth pretty well with a lot of guys who are potentially out on the open market. We've talked about Jordan Montgomery a couple of times. Um, maybe somebody yeah. like that, expiring deal, veteran, steady, not a superstar, probably not going to cost you the farm, something like that. The bullpen, you know, maybe they can find a way to get David Bednar. I doubt it because he has so many years of team control left that it seems like it'll take a mother load offer or they'll just keep him and have him be their closer yeah. when the Pirates are competitive next. But, you know, maybe you aim a peg lower. Could Scott Barlow be somebody you look at? Could Carlos Estevez, if the Angels continue to fall out of the races that they're currently falling out of? I still so, like the idea of packaging Barlow and Granky. I know Granky's on, I think he's currently on the IL. We've talked ad nauseum about my Granky idea. Um, <laughs> and I, I know it's not sexy enough on its own for people to get excited about it necessarily. So maybe packaging Barlow and Granky. And that I don't know what that package has to look like, but I can't imagine Granky costs much. So you're probably just adding something on top of yeah, and and Barlow. And with the starting rotation, it's, which is interesting, is like, okay, does, does is Granky a huge upgrade for you? Probably not. No, maybe. But I trust him more. And then with the younger guys, I think Amiel Sade said this on I think it was Wolf and Luke last week, where it's like when you're relying on some of these younger guys to get deeper into the season where they've put more on their arms than they have as a professional to this point, which is possible down the stretch for both Ryan Nelson and Tommy Henry, you want to have some depth there to supplement that potentially if you know, it starts to fall off at the end because they're not used to pitching that late into a season or something. Right. So arm fatigue. Exactly. So there's a lot of ways to go about this. Um, yeah, it, it looks like if they're going to go outside the organization, it will be for pitching. Offensively, Hazen said they'd like to find answers in, in, like internally. So we'll see. Maybe it's well, you they know, don't have the answer to the rotation internally. Correct. I mean, I like some of the prospects. Don't get me wrong. I I still like Blake Walston, even though he's having a bit of a weird year in AAA. Um, I still like Brandon Fought, even though every time he comes up to the major leagues, he's one of the worst pitchers in baseball. And that's statistics. That's not just my opinion. Yeah. Um. So I don't think that the answer in the rotate to their rotation problems is in the organization right now. Yeah. I understand where they're coming from, though. Like if they want to develop Jordan Lawler and have him up in September. I could see that. I could see him trying to fit in somewhere. I mean, Nick Ahmed doesn't have to play long term. They could put Nick Ahmed on the bench or whatever the case may be. I mean, he's already mostly on the bench. Um, That'd be a quick ascension for for Jordan. He's still in double A. I mean, it would be. It's not unheard of. Guys come up from double A to the majors all the time. But Corbin was in double A most of last season, though, and he spent a short time in triple A before getting the September call up. I think he actually got called up like the end of August, if I remember. At the very end of August, yeah, during that Philly series. The thing is, there's not a lot of teams that are like out of it, out of it. I mean, if you want to talk about the American League wild card, the conversation probably starts with Detroit, Chicago, Kansas City and Oakland. Oakland has nothing I want. So let's (laughs) let's mark them off. Kansas City has that they would give up. Probably Kansas City has Barlow. That's probably their only appealing piece that they're going to move. I would think. Do you agree Um, with that? 
Probably, unless there are some bench bats. I mean, again, I want Granky, but for not like performance reasons. Chicago. Okay, so here's here's a name I'm hearing a lot about: Lucas Giolito, who is a rental guy. I've heard certain analysts on MLB Network, I can't remember who it was, said something to the effect of, that's a guy that will be traded. Uh, just because of where the White Sox are at in the standings and because I don't think he's going back there long term. So that Lucas Giolito's name I would look at. John Heyman did a segment on MLB Network the other day where he put like a bunch of names of pitchers and a percentage chance that he thinks they'll be traded which okay. always makes me laugh because it's it's a guess. Yeah. But, you know, basically to look at the percentages is to say, I feel more confident this guy will get traded. He had Eduardo Rodriguez of the Tigers at 80% likely to be traded, hmm. meaning that I'm guessing that means that they're out there looking at offers for him. That's a left-handed pitcher. Detroit's, like we said, 10 games out of a wild card. They could probably pull the plug on that and move Eduardo Rodriguez. I don't know if that's a pitcher you're interested in. It's certainly somebody that would be good for the Diamondbacks, but what does it cost you? And he's been hurt, like a bunch over the past few years. Um, but when healthy, he's been awesome. This year, two six four ERA and twelve starts. Uh, I think he would be highly sought at the trade deadline. He's not a free agent again until twenty twenty seven because he signed that long term deal. So Hazen loves controllable years. I mean, you're getting a left handed starting pitcher, and he's gotten hurt a bunch, but he's only thirty years old. And it's for the next four years. So that's interesting, but it also sounds expensive. It does sound expensive. Um, so, but while Giolito is a rental... He's younger. And he's younger, he's but having a at great the same year. time... Yeah, it, it's it's sort of like... And, and this is where it gets tricky, because then there's a few guys who are controllable up through the end of next season. Some of them are bigger names like Corbin Burns and Shane Bieber, but there are others. And that's where it's like, okay, what are we building for? What are they building for? So if it's all if it's a run this year to supplement and give themselves the best chance for this year, a trade for somebody like Giolito or Jordan Montgomery makes sense. But if if it's to not only compete this year, but have a rotation piece that you're going to build around for the next few years, and you're willing to give up more of your farm system to get there, could Eduardo Rodriguez be somebody who, it goes Gallon, Kelly, Rodriguez, that's your first series next season, and you're very comfortable with that? Maybe. Yeah, that's another option. Maybe that's it. I think there's a bunch of teams in the wild card hunt that are going to fall off in the next couple of weeks. So, like, I don't think I expect to see big trades in the next two weeks. I think it's going to come down to those last few days before the deadline. Because, totally agree. Because you've got Minnesota. This is just the American League. Minnesota, the Angels, Seattle, Boston, and New York are all trailing in the wild card race. Uh, they're all within five games. Minnesota's half game out of the division too. So yeah, so that's probably not going to be a team that that trades pieces off the angels might be there's always the otani conversation but we're not in that race I hard to think. gauge they've already been buyers they got eduardo escobar and mike mustakas but they've right. lost nine out of ten games and so they're, they're trying falling. to be in the hunt um seattle i can't see selling off boston's only two games out of a wild card right now so that's... in the al it seems detroit chicago kansas city and oakland yeah are the four and then the nl likewise i think there's only four we can definitively say right now which is washington pittsburgh st louis and colorado and even Pittsburgh is only eight out, which isn't outsa- insane, but we know it's Pittsburgh. and um, The Cubs are a team to yeah. root against if you're a Diamondbacks. We, we talked about this last week, I think, which is like, which teams do you root against for the next two weeks to hope that maybe they'll unload some of their pieces? Chicago. A lot of talent on that team. A lot of intriguing talent that could help contenders. But there are five games under 500, seven games back of the Reds in the division. So 
that's a team. But yeah, they also I like, have a positive run differential, so maybe things turn around for them. I like Stroman. He's he would be a rental. He's like a top five to ten pitcher like a super in the league, rental. though. So that would cost you, even though it's a rental. Justin Steele, I like a lot, but that's a young pitcher. I don't. I can't imagine they'd move him. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Mark Leiter Jr. in the bullpen, but he's not a high leverage back end guy. So I don't know if I would make that move. They have a lot of guys for bullpen depth, but yeah. Yeah, it's, but it's no sort of adding what closer. You, to what you have. Yeah. And, and uh, not a lot of teams have a great closer anyway. No, especially to, not the guys at the bottom of the standings. Yeah. I mean, St. Louis doesn't have a lockdown closer. They got a couple of really good relievers like Ryan Helsley, but I don't think they'll move him. He's got control. Uh, Giovanni Gallegos, he's got control. I think if anything, they're moving Jordan Hicks. Pittsburgh's got David Bednar, who's got control and is really good. Maybe for the right package, they would move Bednar, like you talked about. Colorado has nothing. They don't believe in pitching. They never have. <laughs> well, they have Daniel Bard. Yeah, but I, uh, I don't like Daniel Bard that much this year. I've liked him more. I mean, last year was really the, the key year for him, but I, I, I'm not moving for... And I don't think they'd trade him within the division just because they're Colorado. I just don't think that they would do that. Yeah, but they're so they're far they're so far away from competing in a meaningful way that I'm not sure that matters at that point. I think Daniel Bard will, will probably be out of the league by the time that they're competitive. Yeah, next. I just don't think that they want to help the Diamondbacks. That's that's really all it is for me. Maybe it sounds Maybe. petty, but I think that's what sports is. Speaking of division, could Josh Hader be on the move? Probably not to the Diamondbacks, obviously. But um, um, no, probably not to the Diamondbacks. But he's but... somebody that could be on the move as a closer, and that could impact the closer market. As a whole, because it could that would set the tone for sure because he's be on an expiring, and the Padres are still sub five hundred baseball team. He's a pretty rare lockdown lefty closer, though. Those are rare. I mean, I'm thinking Hater and Chapman over the last five years or so. Like those are lockdown lefty closers. I, I can't think of another really good one off the top of my head. There probably are some, but like those are the two guys so i would think hater would kind of set the market for closers and that would drive up the price for a scott barlow it would drive up the price for a david bednar who i already think is expensive so i don't know who's going to fall out of these races by the way san diego's six games back of a wild card if they start to think like you're talking about with hater if they if they start to think they're out of it out of it they have a lot of money on the books mm-hmm. i don't know what san diego is going to do if they're going to jump ship but um, AJ Preller is not usually the kind of guy to do that. He's usually the guy to just keep stacking on top of it and just dig a deeper hole every single time. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do feel that it's not going to be trades happening this week and next. I think it's going to be down to the wire. I think trade deadline day could be really interesting this year. Definitely. And, and just how close a bunch of these races are, how many competitors there are, the extra wild card spots. Uh, I 100% agree with you. Um, kind of going back to what the Diamondbacks and their needs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's again, it's sort of interesting how the season has played out with just who's gotten hot, which sort of elements of the game have stepped up in certain situations. Um, I, I'm curious, sort of what, what do you think is sort of the outlook for this team? Are, are they a team you think is starting to fall off a little bit, or is this a team just watching them that you think little, you know, little spurt where they didn't play their best baseball but they're still one of the best teams in the national league i think they're regressing to the mean a little bit and we've talked about this geraldo perdomo had the highest war among shortstops in the national league for most of the first half that was never going to remain that way so he comes back down to earth a little bit lourdes guriel was a top five hitter in the game of baseball (laughs) in the month of may yeah 
that was not going to continue at that level. He was still a very good player, and he's been good of late, actually. I mean, he's still hitting under 200 in the last couple of weeks, if I remember right. But he's got a couple big home runs in the last few games. Um, so he's regressed to the mean. His June was awful. Um, what else is there? Zach Gallen has been fantastic, so I think I can leave him out of it. Merrill Kelly gets the blood clot. Now all of a sudden you're missing one of your two aces. That's going to bring you down a little bit. I don't think they've figured out. Like they don't currently have five starters in the rotation going into the second half, do they? Uh, they don't. But the because they were doing a bullpen day. I was at the Kyle Nelson bullpen day the other day, which actually worked out pretty well, all things considered. All all of them pitched very well. Tyler Gilbert pitched very well. But it still leaves you wondering heading into the second half: Do we have a fifth pitcher in this rotation? Like once we get through the first four games, what do we do? It'll be Merrill. I think the, the he'll expe- be ready. The expectation is that he's not going to be on the IL for much longer. He threw a simulated sixty-five game, pitch, sixty-five pitches simulated. When did he do that? Uh, that was uh, this. That was Sunday. Sunday. Is he going to do another one before he comes back? Or I think, I think so. Okay. So I'm not sure if it'll be the Toronto series, but maybe the Atlanta series. So if you can throw. Your four starters that we know of, maybe he gets the fifth start out Correct. of the All Star break. Okay, all right. So that that I'll, I'll be believe huge you boost. on that one. That would be huge. I, I'm just saying it also creates a bit of an urgency though to go and get a starting pitcher. I'm not saying they have to in the first five days after the All Star break. It's just there is a clear urgency. The quicker you go and get a pitcher right now, the more impact they have on this team and the ability to win. But to go back True. to the regression to the mean, uh, you know the bullpen. I think you've been saying it all season long. They've been good. They've been good. It's just that they get to the ninth inning and they're not good. Yeah, if you, if you go and on... And that, that inning counts almost a little bit more than some of the others. I know they all count the same in the scorebook. Like, you score in the ninth, you score in the sixth, it still counts the same. But for some reason, the ninth inning is just different. It is. And, I mean, if you go to baseball reference, they have, like, a let leverage stats, pretty okay. much. Low leverage, medium leverage, high leverage. It's, it's basically, you know, situations that change the uh, win probability of the game uh, significantly, okay. Uh, a lot of their guys in high leverage situations just ha- haven't been as successful. Um, I-, I-, I wrote this a couple uh, or yesterday. Just there's been a couple of guys. Chafin is an example. He's had a great season for them. He's been a workhorse. He's pitched a ton of games in low leverage situations. He has been nearly unhittable. It's an OPS of uh, in the 500s somewhere. Wow. In high leverage situations, which he's been getting more of. Uh, well, he's going to be getting more of this year than in previous seasons. It's up in the upper 700s. So it, it's just it's a stark difference. Maybe that's because of the pressure of the situation. Maybe it's a coincidence. But it, it's happening to a lot of their pitchers. Um, Kyle Nelson's another guy like that. Ginkle's another guy like that. McGuff got roughed up a couple times before the break. Yeah, but he has been their best high leverage guy. Yeah, um, and he's he continues to get... I mean, it's funny. I was talking about it on Saturday with Mitch. Uh, my co-host of the show, and we were talking about McGuff, and you know he had he had a bad outing, and Tori decided not to go to him the next time in the ninth inning. And it's funny because we had that conversation on Saturday morning, and then I went to the game Saturday afternoon, and they went to McGuff late in the game. I think it was a tie game, if I remember right, at that point. But he struck out the side, but they used him in the ninth inning. Yeah, I think it was the ninth inning. It was late in the game. That game went to extras, so I guess it all kind of gets muddied up in the water. But right, not only. They bring him in as high leverage, but they can use him multiple innings, which yeah. is a huge tool to have. I think um, he's been good. He's been very good. Yeah. But is he a closer? I, I mean, he's, he's been okay. Effectively he's been, been a closer. Role. Yeah, he's been pretty good in that role. I mean, he had the one blow up against the Rays that I think stuck in people's minds. But other than that, 
I mean, obviously, early in the season, the Padres, the Hassan Kim walk-off. But, yeah. you know, he had been in the majors for a week at that point. Different baseball, different hitters, that kind of a thing. Kind of throw that out. So the Rays blow-up is really the only time we've seen him sort of completely give away a save. So I think he's been very good there. But you want optionality in the back end of the of the bullpen, especially when, you know, as a whole, that ninth inning has been a, a struggle for this team. So just to have another guy who's used to being back there, even if he's not the full-time closer, even if you don't bring in Bednar, even if you don't bring in, you're not going to bring in Hader, but even if they don't bring in Hader, like a full-time closer, but somebody who can match up alongside McGuff or whomever else, I think that goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. I, so again, to my point earlier about regress, regression to the mean, I think that they're doing that in some aspects. Perdomo and some of the others that we talked about, Lord Escuriel certainly is in that mix. But there's also a few lessons learned, too. Like, third base, they've certainly been more solidified lately than they were early on. Josh Rojas hasn't hit a home run all year in the major leagues. That's part of the reason he's not there right now. Emmanuel has has regressed to the mean a little bit. He has, for (laughs) sure. Evan Longoria is still hitting bombs at an incredible rate. It's just he hasn't played a ton because Josh Rojas was the starter for the beginning of the season. And then Rivera was hot for a little while. So Longoria is trying to kind of weasel his way in there. And Rojas will be back at some point. You would think. And he was, we were both really impressed with Josh Rojas's defensive metrics early in the season. Those regressed as well as we got closer to the time when he eventually was uh, sent back down to Reno. So I do think that they're a little bit more comfortable with the third base situation now than they were even when Rojas was there to begin. Um, that's a position that if you wanted at the trade deadline to go and try to find somebody, I don't know who's out there at that spot, maybe like Candelario in Washington or something. He's come up a bunch, yeah. Um, Maybe that's a guy that you go and look at because third base appears to be your weakest position. Um, I could see them doing that, but the problem is it's not that you have a shortage of guys. They have Rojas, they have Rivera, they have Longoria. It's just a matter of how do you upgrade the position and then what do you do with those guys? Do they just go away? Does Rivera get sent back down to Reno? And now you got two of those guys in, in the minors. I don't know. But there are some lessons learned. They are in a better spot now. They went through the Bumgarner thing. They they washed their hands of that. That's over and done with. They went on to the younger pitchers. They went through the whole sending Alec Thomas down, sending Jake McCarthy down. They both come back. They're, they play really well in their roles. Alex Bat's actually been pretty good the last couple of games. Since but, he's come up, he's been... But he's a really good defensive outfielder. We all know that's why he, he makes the biggest impact on this on this team is defensively. And I would say Jake McCarthy. I mean, the guy's got like eight, 17, 18 stolen bases, something like that. 20. Does he have 20 now? He has 20. Gosh. He's I, second behind Corbin. I blinked and, and he got like, like half the game. three. Holy cow, he does have 20 now. Yeah, he's leading the team. And I guess going back to sort of... Other the, than Corbin, sorry. Right. And like the lessons learned is we know what this team is really good at and can be consistently really good at. Defensively, especially when you mentioned Thomas, when Thomas, McCarthy, and Carroll are in the outfield together, that's a stacked defensive unit out there. And it's so much fun to watch because they can run down almost everything. And then in the infield, Christian Walker is the best defensive first baseman in the game. Yep. You know, Rivera and Longoria are not Rojas defensively at third base, at least the Rojas we saw earlier this season, but they're both serviceable over there. Perdomo, I think, has two errors the entire season and has just been a Rock solid over at short. Ketel Marte has been much improved at second. And then Moreno has been one of the best defensive catchers in the league. That's where a lot of his value comes from. Yeah. So defensively, this team is rock solid, and that helps the pitchers out, especially some of the younger pitchers who may give up you know, some contact. More fly balls, more line drives. Tommy Henry's yeah. not striking out 10 guys a game. 
but no. he's leaning on the defense and they've done their job and he's done his job. So that's one. And then offensively, Tory called it traffic. When they can create traffic, they're so hard to defend. And we saw that in that first game against the Pirates on Friday when they snapped that four-game uh, losing streak. Get a guy on, steal a bag, ball gets away, get over to third, bun him over, sack fly, and then you get all these moving parts and then bang. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. hits a three-run home run and you, b- you break the game open. We've called it chaos before. Create chaos. Using the base running. Traffic, yeah. all that kind of stuff. They have to get on base to do that, and there right. have been a couple stretches. The very beginning of the season, and then this latest stretch, where the at-bats just haven't been as competitive, and they haven't been walking quite as often. So there's been a couple of lulls there. For the most part, they've been very good offensively. They're seventh in runs at this point. Just limiting those lulls, finding ways to like create offense as opposed to just relying on slug, which doesn't work for them. That's just not how they're built. Right. Creating those opportunities is so important for them. And that's something we've seen at them that they've been able to do at the heights of the season uh, and something that is kind of a common thread when they've struggled a little bit. So coming out of the All-Star break, we talked about the schedule a little bit. It is kind of brutal in those first nine games on the road. Toronto, a team that is in third place, I think, in their division, but has the record of the Cincinnati Reds in first place in the NL Central. Um, So you get Toronto for three. Atlanta for three, that's a first-place team and arguably maybe the best team in baseball, or at least in the National League. I think the Rays still have an argument for best in baseball. I think and the Braves Cincinnati. have been the best in baseball since the first... Oh, they the yeah, the Braves have the best record in baseball. Okay, there They're you go. The only 60-win team. Yeah, so you've got three really tough series. I'm interested to watch the Cincinnati series um, just because I think there are a lot of parallels to where these two organizations are at right now. I know everyone's going to talk about Ellie De La Cruz and Corbin Carroll and you know Rightfully the budding so. superstars. That's going to be terrific. Totally agree. Uh, Cincinnati's got a lot of other stuff going for them, and especially a lot of young guys. Matt McClain has been spectacular. And, Diamondbacks draft pick. Uh, I know. I know. How much do you regret that one? It wasn't their fault, though. They picked him, and he just didn't come with to the UCLA instead. Yeah. 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 So not their fault, but still, uh, it is a little bit gratifying, I guess, to see him work out at the major league level. Good draft pick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good decision. He just didn't follow up on it. Um, Spencer Steer is a really fun player. I love watching Joey Votto because he's like the 40-year-old man out there with a bunch of 22-year-olds, <laughs> and he's just having the time of his life. So I think he's been spectacular to watch since coming back from injury. Um, they're just a fun team. TJ Friedel I like a lot. Jake Fraley drives guys in. Um, Cincinnati's in a good spot for the future, and so that's a fun series. So they won't even—the Diamondbacks won't get a home game until St. Louis on Monday, July 24th. Pretty brutal. So long. Yeah, it's two full weeks from now. The schedule does lighten up at some point. They get St. Louis, Seattle, San Francisco. Um, it really doesn't get much better than that until Colorado in August, mid-August. So tough, good test. Tough good schedule. Test. Very tough schedule. Tough schedule. I don't know what the end of the season looks like. Oh, it's not good either. <laughs> no, they, they they have one of the most difficult schedules in the league over the you know back half because you mentioned that Colorado series in the middle of August. Yeah. Then they go at San Diego. They play the Rangers, they play the Reds for four, and then they're at Dodger Stadium again. So it immediately Ugh. jumps back up. And then they have the Orioles, so who are also it's, good. Uh, it's it's going to be difficult. And then the very, very end of the schedule, uh, the last series in September is Houston. Uh, the last series of the season There's is Houston, a stretch so. in September. Hear me out. September 4th through September 17th might be kind of nice. Colorado, four against the Cubs. We're not a bad team, but... Not a great team either. Then you get the Mets for four. 
that's a team that has a good lineup and a good like all the good players, but they're not playing well. And then you get Chicago again for three more. So that's a stretch of what is that like fourteen games that are pretty winnable yeah. in September. But like you mentioned, you get into New York Yankees in New York, and then you get Houston at Chase Field to end the. I mean, that's rough, man. Just at this point, I mean, obviously the team's going to take it day by day, the, the classic like oh take it one day at a time thing. But if sure. you're a fan, it's just like. Win series against the teams that you think you're as good as or better than. Just win just win these series. I mean, if you don't win the series against the Braves, you know, that's okay. But beat the Cardinals and the Mariners in a series at home, kind of a deal. If you know, the Dodgers take you know, I'm not D backs fans won't say this, but if the Dodgers take two out of three against them uh in their series in late August, but then the Diamondbacks turn around and take two out of three against the Orioles, you probably take that. Yeah, like if then you play the Rockies next, and that's a team that you're supposed to beat. If you so the nine game stretch right out of the All Star break, three against Toronto, three against Atlanta, three against Cincinnati. If they leave that those nine games with five wins, I'm okay with that. I think that's where I'm at because that means right. you win one against Atlanta, two against Toronto, two against Cincinnati. I mean, that's just how I'm breaking it down, and I think I'd be okay with that. Just being over 500 in the in the first road trip. Yeah, I mean, if they just they're capable so right of now, more than that. They're fifty-two and thirty-nine, so if they're roughly a five hundred team the rest of the way, that's probably eighty-six wins, eighty-six and seventy-six. If they're ten games over five hundred by the I end of the year, I think that would be a disappointment. I think so too. But if you're even like four games over five hundred the rest of the way, then you're looking at a ninety-win team or an eighty-eight win team, and probably a wild card. Correct. Which gets you in. Which gets you in. That's really that's all you're asking biggest, about. That's the biggest deal. Just get in. All right, so all eyes on the All-Star game tonight. It is Tuesday, and then a couple of days off, the Diamondbacks and the rest of the league start back up on Friday. Something to keep your eyes on. So thank you so much for checking out the podcast. We'll be back for the second half of the season. I'm Steve Zinsmeister with Alex Weiner, covers the team at ArizonaSports.com. And you've been listening to the Ain't No Fang podcast here at ArizonaSports.com and on the Arizona Sports app.